There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. Well, good morning, church. Uh, good to be with you today. Um, if you are new with us, we are in week four of our series, Cultivating the Christian Life, where we've been taking a deep dive into the topic of spiritual formation. Now, this is a three-month series which examines five phases of growth in the Christian life. <clears throat> the first few weeks, we looked at the planted phase. Today, we're moving into the rooted Phase And our key verse for this morning is Colossians 2, 6, and 7, where the Apostle Paul exhorts believers with these words. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. So receiving Jesus Christ, accepting the seed of the gospel, is part of that planted phase that we spoke about. But what good is it to plant a seed and not watch it take root and grow? And so Paul tells us we need to not just receive Christ, we have to plant our roots deep in him so that our faith will grow and abound in thanksgiving. Now, hopefully you've been able to pick up one of our workbooks. Um, if you haven't, we still have some left that you can get. Uh, today we've reached rule number three on page 51. So if you have your workbooks, turn to page 51. Uh, the rule number three is this, get to the root of your problem. We're going to be talking about your problems today. Get to the root of your problem or you will never change. And also on page 50, there's a section for sermon notes where you can add material to the chapter. And we certainly encourage you to do that throughout the series. Growth requires life change. And for many of us, this is a more difficult phase because it requires that we, we take a hard look at our lives and ask, where do I need to change so that I can conform my life to be more like Jesus? What does change look like? Well, as I was thinking about that question this week, I was drawn to my Apple iPhone. <laughs> but the reason, was that, reason for that was because I was thinking about Steve Jobs. Um, if you don't know him, he was Apple's late co-founder and CEO. And he displayed just an incredible amount of drive and creativity. Uh, but he was also, you know, notoriously known for his controlling personality and habitual nature. And one of the ways where that manifested itself was with food. Now, Steve Jobs was obsessed with food in ways that dominated his life and relationships. As a teenager, we read that he was, he was actually experimenting with strange diets. I read at one point in time, he actually went for two weeks eating only apples, Right, can you imagine eating only apples for two weeks? Uh, hopefully they were Macintosh. Uh, now the various diets, often based on raw foods, uh, gave Steve Jobs this, this exhilarating sense of control. 
But in October 2003, Steve Jobs received news he couldn't control. A routine scan discovered a rare version of pancreatic cancer that's slow-growing and consequently was almost always curable with prompt surgery. But Steve Jobs went a different direction. Biographer Walter Isaacson records this. He says, Jobs decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. And why didn't he do that? Steve Jobs said, I really didn't want them to open up my body, so they tried to see if a few, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. He, Isaacson says, he told me that later with a, a hint of regret. Specifically, Steve Jobs tried to keep to a strict vegan diet. He drank large quantities of fresh carrot and fruit juices, and for nine months he did this as his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery. But Steve Jobs refused. And it wasn't until July of the next year that he did consent to remove part of his pancreas, but during the surgery, doctors found that the cancer had spread, and from that point on, Steve Jobs would never be free of cancer, and just over eight years later, he would pass away at age 56. Now, let me just pause and say um, that this is, a, this is a sad, tragic story. Uh, no one should have to walk through the pain of cancer, and if that is something that you are walking through now, you know it's a painful experience. But the flip side of Steve Jobs' story is that in his case, it could have potentially been preventable if he had acted sooner. Now, what happened? Well, even though he was made aware of a disease that could have possibly been corrected by surgery, Steve Jobs said what? He said, I didn't want them to open me up. Instead, he tried to control the situation through his own efforts. I think it's ironic that a man who is known for advanced technology was resisting using medical technology to help him. And later, we read that he was expressing regret for his response to the problem. Now, I tell that story as we open today because it, I think it gets to the heart of our, our topic. Growth requires life change. We all have heart issues. And the problem for so many of us is that like Steve Jobs... Yes, we know there's an internal problem, but we don't want to take a look inside. Why? Because then we'd have to face what's inside. And that is terrifying for many of us. And it's odd because really that's one of the greatest opportunities for growth in our lives. Why don't we want to face what's inside? It's scary. It's painful. It's, it's shameful. Right? What's inside is the real us. Our thoughts when we do what we do when no one else is looking, our browsing history, we don't want to admit what's inside and we don't want other people to see it. What we do and think when no one is looking or listening shows our desires. And those desires inside each of us reveal who we are at the core. And for the Christian, it can be shameful to admit just how little we desire Jesus, even though he knows our hearts. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus calls his first disciples. John the Baptist has just revealed who Jesus is, and the text tells us that the two, two disciples come up to Jesus, and they start following him. And as they're following him, this is what we read. It says, John looked, Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. Now, this wasn't a flippant like, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? Get out of here. No, it wasn't that. What Jesus is asking is essentially, what are your desires? Right? What are your deepest longings? Do you want me or something else? And then the disciples go and they spend the day with him, proving their desire to, to know him and, and be with him. Now, this one question, I think, 
that Jesus asks cuts us open and forces us to look inside. What do you want? Even though we may say we want to grow and change, the reason we don't is that we want something more than Jesus. And change requires us to face what's inside of us. Listen, if you want to get to the root of your problems, you have to confront your deepest desires. And that, that requires courage and humility. Author and counselor Larry Crabb captures what change looks like and why we resist it in his excellent book, Inside Out. He writes this. He says, change, as our Lord describes it, involves more than cleaning up our visible act. He intends us to do more than sweep the streets. He wants us to climb down in the sewers and do something about the filth beneath the concrete. What an interesting image. He directs us to enter the dark regions of our soul to find light, to experience his presence when we, most, when we feel most alone. Biblical change never requires us to pretend that things are better than they are. Christ wants us to face reality as it is, including our fears, hurts, resentments, and self-protective motives we work hard to keep out of sight and to emerge as changed people. Not pretenders, not perfect, but more able to deeply love because we are more aware of his love. Now, in that dark place, we must all confront our deepest desires and shine the light of the gospel on them. Jesus knows we have desire, which is why he says this in John 7.37. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood up. What did he shout to the crowds? Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. We all thirst. And the things we thirst for reveal what is inside of us. But we're not always proud of what those desires reveal about us. A cancer may be growing on our soul and we don't realize it. There's a root that needs to be pulled up. And like Steve Jobs, we're too afraid to face what's inside. Well, today, let's take a look inside and ask, do I want to change? And if that's your desire, you have to get to the root of your problems. If you want to change, if you want to, if you want to get to that root, you've got to take three steps. The first step is you've got to find the roots. Then you have to explore the roots. And then finally, you've got to pull the root. Find the root, explore the root, pull the root. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so as we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, my friends that are here today, whether they're here with us, whether they're we're watching or listening. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just um, uh, move on our hearts, Holy Spirit. Would you reveal the deep places that are causing pain within us, uh, the areas where we're resisting your, your prodding and your, and your, and your, uh, your sanctifying um, efforts, Lord? Would, would you give us humility today to hear from you in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. All right. So as we take this journey today, uh, let me give you an image to hold on to, and that's the image of gardening gloves. Um, when I was uh, little... My, uh, my dad and I, well, my dad would, he helped me create a garden outside of our house, like beautify the outside of the house. And one of the skills he taught me was about pulling weeds and uprooting plants in that garden. Because he said, if you really want to get rid of that weed or that plant that's growing in the garden, you got, you got to go and you got to find the root and then you got to pull it, right? But there's three steps, he said. The first step is that you had to actually find the root, which meant you had to get a little dirty, so if I, if I got this plant here and I want to take it out, I actually got to get in here. I got to pull up the dirt. I got to move it around. I got to find where that root actually is, right? It, it makes you get dirty. And the same thing is true with our spiritual 
lives. If you want to change, you got to find that root, and that requires getting a little messy. Now, throughout the scriptures, we are exhorted over and over again to trust the Lord with all our hearts, to worship him, to bring him glory. And at the same time, we read over and over again, people are constantly turning away from that calling. When we do, we turn our hearts to false gods or what the Bible calls idols. Now, those idols plant deep roots in our hearts, which in turn then affect the way we live. And so finding the root of our problems requires identifying idols in our lives. So let's ask a couple questions. The first question is this. What exactly is an idol, you might say? What are idols? Because when I mention idols, probably what you think of is you have this like ancient statue in your mind that people would bow down to, this ancient totem pole, big thing. Um, And to some extent, that's true, right? In the ancient Near East, Israel was surrounded by nations that worshipped these type of idols, but those, those idols were almost always related to something, some aspect of life. There, there were gods for war. There were, there were gods for money. There were gods for sex. There were gods that were over specific nation states. And so when Yahweh God, the true God of the Bible, chooses Israel to be his people, one of the first things he says is, don't worship those false gods. They will leave you empty. And this is not an ancient problem. This is a modern problem. This is a human problem. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller offers probably one of the best definitions of idols I've heard. And this is what he says. He simply says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He calls it a counterfeit God, which is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Now that puts it, I think, a little bit in perspective. Because even now, some of us maybe are taking stock of our lives and thinking, well, maybe I do have some idols. We can turn anything into an idol, right? Which then then can develop a controlling position in your heart. Philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville said it this way. He says, an idol is when you, you take some incomplete joy of this world and you build your entire life on it. What does that mean? That means you can build your life on, on money and success, right? You can build your life on, on your family. You can build your life on power and prestige. Good, some of these are good things, but Tim Cowher sums it up this way. He says, an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes the functional God of your life. You worship it. You make sacrifices to it. It consumes your thoughts and your time. And unless you're careful, it can quickly take hold of your inner life. And God knows this is the natural mode of the human heart. Look at what he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and then they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, if you... <clears throat> If you notice here, there's two things the people of Israel did. First, very obviously, they turned away from God, they forsook him, they left him, they forgot who he was. But secondly, secondly, they built these cisterns, which are, which are jars, and they could hold no water, and they could hold no water because they were broken, right? It's that, that water image that Jesus brings in in John 7. God knows his people are thirsty, they have longings, they have desires, but they can only be filled by who? By God himself, and instead of drinking those living waters from God, they build their own jars, which are, are fractured, 
and there's no water, and they're empty. Now, the second question that you have to ask yourself is, that's what idols are, but then secondly, what do idols do? What do idols do? Well, like those broken cistern jars, they leave us empty. They, they, they leave us thirsty and, and without satisfying water. And, and God takes it a step further. If you skip ahead to Jeremiah 17, he, answers, uh, he talks about this another way. This is what he says in Jeremiah 17:5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Now, if you have your Bibles open, whether you're here or at home, I want you to circle that word, trust. Right here, the warning is to avoid trusting in any created thing. And that's a key component to what idols do. Idols want you to trust them. So if you take a step back and ask yourself, where are you placing your trust? Because if we're honest, we often realize that our trust is in created things rather than God. For many of us, it's money. Right? We feel much more secure when we have a full bank account. For others, it's our status in society. Maybe it's your friend group or your family or that, that school you're trying to get into. Where are you placing your trust? Because whatever that thing is, if you lost it, would it throw you in a deep depression? Now, if you look back at that verse, I want you to circle another word. Circle the word heart. God says that when you trust in something other than me, it captures your heart. In other words, it captures your love. And that's another thing that idols do. They make us love them, right? And when you love something, you will do anything for it. Martin Luther once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. What is your heart clinging to today? Author J.K. Smith wrote an excellent book entitled, You Are What You Love. And in the book, he makes this, this really important point. Essentially, he says, so many Christians think that the way to grow in the Christian life is to just acquire more knowledge. And that's what we do, right? right? We come to church, you know, we take notes on the sermon. If the preacher makes a good point, we, we write it down, we nod our heads, and we go, mmm, mmm, right? Or if we had our Wheaties this morning, we, we, we get really rambunctious, and we go, amen, yes. We gain knowledge, And knowledge is a good thing, but the point of this message today is simply this. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. It's not enough if you want deep, lasting life change. Because for that, you have to get to the heart. right? You need to reorder your loves in such a way that you love God above all else. Why? Because if you don't love God, you're going to love something else. And that's why Smith writes this. He says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. Now, do you start to see how idols can affect how you behave and live? Right? Because here's the call. Here's the allure of idols. Right? It's very practical. This is what they say. Love me. Trust me. And when you love and obey something, you start to, you start to when you love and trust something, you start to obey it. I want to show you how this plays out. Look, if you have your workbooks, turn to page 52. And there, you're going to see a graphic of a tree. In Matthew 7, 18, Jesus gives this this illustration of a tree that bears either good fruit or bad fruit. But the type of tree is contingent upon where its roots are planted. Where is the nutrient coming from? And so what the graphic does really wonderfully is is show you that the fruit of the tree... The actions that we observe in our lives and the lives of others 
Um, if you want to find out where those things are, you have to trace it down to the roots. Okay? So what, 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 is, the, what is the fruit? The fruit is uncontrolled anger. Right? Somebody, you know somebody who just bursts out in anger all the time. Or somebody has a food addiction or a sexual sin or they're people, a people pleaser or a workaholic, etc. But those habits did not arise from nowhere. You've got to trace it down to the roots. So let me give you a couple examples. Um, I've known people who will come to me and they'll say, hey, I'm struggling, I'm struggling with anger. And I say, they say, Pastor, how do, how, do I, how do I deal with my anger issue? And I say, well, that's a problem most people have if they're, if they're honest. Tell me, about, tell me about it. Tell me when do you get angry. And as you start to dig into your story, what we almost always discover is there is something underneath. For example, let's say you're, you're somebody who, who's at the top of your company and a subordinate starts outperforming you. Okay? And then you start to get angry at everybody and you're wondering, why is that happening? Well, that person, that subordinate, is, is threatening your power. Right? And so it starts to draw out maybe insecurity and pride. And that anger is linked to this power idol. And when you start to discover that, you can start to root it out. Or another common example is, uh, is lust. Right? Somebody might come to me and they say, hey, I have a lust problem. How do I, how do I combat it? And, and I walk them through the same process. And I say, well, tell me, when, when do you lust? And the person says, well, it's often connected to the loss of a romantic partner. And then I start to feel lonely. And, and shame and fear. And what the person often discovers is that those, those feelings are rooted in some kind of idol of romance or, or reputation. Because those idols tell us, well, if I only have that one person who will love me, then I'm going to be complete. But, but when we don't find that romance, we, we turn to various forms of, of sexual sin or, or something else to feel fulfilled. And then the idol of reputation causes us not to confess our actions because if somebody knew the real me, if I was found out, then I would lose my good name. And so we hide, and it breeds this endless cycle of shame and guilt. As Jeremiah pointed out, those idols can cause us to build broken cisterns that can't hold the water we thirst for. Now, I could go on, but you get the idea, and there's going to be plenty of opportunity to discuss this in small groups. Uh, but I, I just want you to see this truth. At the root of our actions are the tentacles of idolatry. Idols want us to love them. Idols want us to trust them. Idols want us to obey them. But in the end, they leave us empty and alone. So Jeremiah then offers a contrast about the fruit of idolatry in chapter 17, verse 7 and 8. He says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its, its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now, trusting in idols is like putting water in a broken jar. But then he says, what, what happens when you trust in the Lord? Right? We're blessed. Right? We're a tree. We like trees around here, right? And whose roots stretch out, they find refreshing water, right? That's the purpose of the roots, right? They, they find water so the tree can be nourished. And what's the result of that? The result is there's no fear when the heat comes, right? The leaves don't fall off the tree. They don't die. When we get anxious, we're still bearing fruit. Why? Because it's rooted in the true God and not a false one. Friends, if you want to change, you have to find the root and at the root of your problems, you'll often find an idol planted deep in your heart. 
And so you have to take out those gardening gloves. You have to pull away the dirt. You got to find that root. Now, why is that important? Proverbs 4.23 tells us this. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And in Hebrew thoughts, the heart was the center of all we were. It affects our loves and our actions and our beliefs. If you don't guard your heart, it will change the course of your life. Why? Because Jeremiah tells us that our hearts have a propensity to wander. Look at 17.9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Guard your heart, yes, but you can't always believe what your heart says. Because apart from Jesus, your heart is sick. And this is why the cultural call to just follow your heart wherever is so, is so deceptive and destructive because your heart is fickle. As John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. And because it's an idol factory, we must sing aloud the words of the great hymn, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Why? Because we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our heart's like a guitar. It's like an instrument. And when we pursue idols, it's out of tune. We need to recalibrate those strings to the love of God. Friends, if you want to change, it takes more than knowledge. And that's, that's difficult for many of us because we live in an educated area, right? We have great school systems. Intellectual growth is paramount. But there's a lot of really well-educated people Smart people whose lives are a mess. Real life change requires a total heart transformation. It takes a reordering of our loves. Otherwise, idols capture that love. Now, before we leave this section, one final question, and that is just simply this. How do you recognize an idol? Recognizing our idols, finding the root, requires what I'll simply call a heart x-ray. You need to ask probing questions, and you really need to meditate on the answers. So uh, David Powison wrote, wrote a book entitled Seeing with New Eyes, and chapter 7 is all about what he calls x-ray questions to examine your heart. Or as he puts it, the questions aim to help people identify the ungodly masters that occupy positions of authority in your hearts. So here's a couple examples you can ask yourself. Just simply ask yourself, what do I love? Right, what do I fear? What do you tend to worry about? What do you think you need where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, security? And if your answer to those questions is not first and foremost God, then you may be at risk of having an idol planted in your heart. So if you want to change, find that root. But then you have to go further, right? You can't, you can't just find the root. Then you have to explore the root. That's step two. Explore the root. So let me come back to the gardening gloves again here because, again, my dad... Taught me about gardening, right? He said, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple steps you got to take, right? You can find the root. You, you, you take a peek at it. He said, but that's not enough. It's not enough to find the root. Then you have to explore it, right? Why? Because the root, if you've, if you've ever tried to pull up something, the root often is larger than at first glance. It could be long. It could be interconnected. You've really got to dig down there. You've got you to gotta find where... Have you ever tried to like pull a root? You get in there, you pull it, and all of a sudden it looks like it's 10 feet long? Like it's, it's, it can be long. You've got to dig down. You've got to get even dirtier to find the root and where it's connected to. It's not enough just to find it. You have to explore it, 
If you want to get to the problem, the problem out of your life, if you want to experience deep, lasting change, you need to find that whole root or the problem might come back. Now, for too many of us, here's the thing. For too many of us, when we seek to grow and change in the Christian life, the reason we don't is that we only get to part of the root of our problems, right? We find it, but we don't explore it. And, and, and I ask myself, why is that? And I can only speak for myself, but the reason I think it is for so many of us is that exploring the root, looking for the deep tentacles of it, it's painful, right? It takes time. It takes years through prayer and counsel to really understand that root system that's in your heart. And that exploration can bring up painful memories. It can bring up shameful habits, things we really don't want to, we don't want to talk about. It's much easier just to take an ax to cut the root where you find it and not dig any deeper. But then the problem hasn't really been fully dealt with. So we need to search and explore the soil of our hearts. And that's why the Lord concludes this section in Jeremiah with these words. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, now that's, that's what, what he's getting at here is exactly what I'm talking about. What does it mean to search the heart and test the mind? He wants us to assess our motives, right? And to do that, you really need to examine the heart. So here's the truth. God, God already knows our motives, but this verse takes us below the surface of our outward actions. What he's saying is this, the fruit of your deeds are directly linked to your motives. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's where I think it really connects with Christian growth, because there's a lot of Christians out there that, that do the right thing for the wrong reason. Read the Bible? Oh, yeah, of course, reading the Bible is a good thing. I, I want you to read the Bible. But do you read the Bible to make yourself look good or because you really want to know God? Right? Serve in ministry. Yes, we love service. That's great. That's a good thing. But do you do it for approval or do you do it to please God even if nobody else noticed? What is the root of your motivation? You need to take an extensive look inside. You need to examine what? You need to look. You need to examine what's happening at the core motivation part of yourself, even if you are a Christian. There's a lot of Christians who are content to go through the motions. And some people, listen, some people can be Christians for decades and not see any deep life change. And you ask yourself why. And the reason is we don't pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. What did David pray? He said, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer of our heart if we want to change. Now, Jesus also is instructive here. Um, if you look in Matthew's gospel, and you read Matthew's gospel, um, who was it written to? It was written to religious Jews to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. And over and over again in the gospel of Matthew, who does Jesus criticize? He criticizes the Pharisees, the religious people, the Sermon on the Mount that was written to them. And then we come to an interesting scene in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus just unloads on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And what does he say? He says, you guys tell others what to do, how to act, but you don't follow your own advice. Right? You preach, but you don't practice. That's what he says. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in verse 25 and 26. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right, for you clean the you clean the what? You clean the outside of the cup on the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you focus outward, but miss 
the inward issue. You've engaged in a type of religious idolatry. You've missed what it means to really grow. You can do all the right things for the wrong reasons. You need to examine the root of that issue, your heart motivation, and then take action. Look at verse 26. He says, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, then the outside also will be clean. And so don't miss what Jesus is saying. He says, your outward actions, your behavior will only change what? When your heart does. And that's what most people miss, right? What we, what we do is we try, to, we try to engage in behavior modification, right? So we might discover, what I mean by that is we might discover trigger, triggers that make us angry. And then we learn how to modify our behavior when it happens. And, th- and that may be a good thing, but we, we've only found the root. We haven't explored it further to see what's causing those triggers. And only when you do that and then you shine the gospel light on the problem, that's, it's only then when deep, lasting change is going to occur. So at the end of the day, our desire is to know God and make him known. But what's our motivation? To please God? To look good? Or another way of asking that question is, what are your longings? Right? The Bible talks about the goodness, the reality of human longings. So, Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's what? There's fullness of joy. At your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. He says, he says in my presence there's fullness of joy. But the problem is, for so many of us, we don't think that's enough. Right? We think we need more. Or if I asked you the question, would you come to church if all you had was Jesus? How would you answer? Right, right. Would you show up at church if we didn't have comfy chairs or heat when it's 15 degrees outside <laughs> or, you know, or a great band? Would, would you still come to church? Would Jesus' presence be enough? Because look at what Jesus promises. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full And that's spoken in the context of the upper room discourse where Jesus is giving lasting words to his disciples. And what does he say? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're part of me, you're going to experience what? You're going to experience joy. In me, your true deepest longings will be fulfilled. But again, for so many of us, it's not enough. When we actually explore the root, what we find is that we don't think Jesus is enough, and that's why we pursue idols. That's why the people of Israel went and built the golden calf. God doesn't give us what we think we should have, and so we make another God that's going to make us happy. You know, I heard a preacher make this statement one time. He said, um, people, modern people are not on a truth quest. As much as we like to believe that, they're on a happiness quest. They will do whatever it takes to make them happy. In other words, we worship happiness. Author Elise Fitzpatrick makes this note about how idols affect our happiness. She says, idolatry happens when we invest something, anything, with the power to bring us peace and joy, to give us what we should seek only from God. What makes us happy is directly related to those longings in our heart. Is your longing for Jesus. Now, I think one of the best examples of this is found in C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And one of the main characters in the book is Eustace Clarence Scrub, a cousin of the Pevensey children. And in the book, he makes his first trip to this magical land of Narnia, and uh, much of the narrative surrounds his transformation and growth. 
At the beginning of the book, uh, Eustace is much like the Pharisees. He's pompous and arrogant. He's part of the elite, educated class. He's self-centered. He's always putting people down to make himself look good, and he's unable to accept that Narnia is real. Well, in the middle of the book, during a stop on one of the islands, Eustace uh, goes off and he falls asleep on a dragon's treasure. And his heart, we're told, becomes greedy, and he starts to think, he starts to think dragonish thoughts. And then when he wakes up, he finds that he's actually turned into a dragon. And afterwards, Eustace regrets his actions, who he was. He wants to change, but the reality is that turning into a dragon revealed what was in his heart. He longed to be happy, and he did it by a wrong strategy. And the idols that dominated that root system of his life were revealed. So finding the roots shows you the idol in your life, but then... You have to explore that route to see how tight a grip that idol has on your heart motivations because it may be that you've turned into a dragon and you didn't know it. So how does exploring the route bring about change? Well, to do that, you have to look below the waterline. Larry Crabb offers this illustration of an iceberg in his book, and it's kind of a famous illustration. Uh, Most of an iceberg is found below the surface of the water. Above the water, much like the tree we looked at, there's visible things in our lives, But below the waterline is our interior life that affects how we live. That's the motivational part. Exploring the root, exploring what's below the waterline reveals two things. And the first is that we need to depend on the special work of the Holy Spirit if we're going to change. Because the Spirit in Scripture is often referred to as what? As a helper and a counselor. He illuminates our hearts. He convicts us of sin. He washes us clean. The Holy Spirit can reveal those deep parts of our root system that need to be explored. And there might be sin that needs to be repented of. The second thing we could do to change is we could work on growth in counseling. And that area can work hand in hand with the Holy Spirit. Because if you're going uh, to you know, truly explore the deep roots of your heart, you might need the help of a skilled counselor to walk you through. Now, if you're somebody who, who would like to pursue that, uh, talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave. We would love to connect you with a, a biblical counselor with a Christian worldview. But first, ask yourself, do you want to change? Right? Because if you want to change first, you've got to find the idol at the root of the problem. Second, you have to explore the root and see how big it is. But then, if you want to change, you have to take a final, painful step. You've got to squat down and you've got to pull the root. That's the last one. You've got to pull the root. Now, let me put on the gloves one last time. Um, We've been dealing with this pot over here, right? Uh, We've been getting a little dirty, but the last part is when you get the dirtiest, right? Because the third step was my favorite part of of, of gardening, what my father taught me. Um, First, he would say, you got to dig down there, you got to find the root, you know, and then you got to explore around. But then, once you knew what you were dealing with, you had to to really grab on, okay? And depending on how big the, uh, the thing was, even sometimes if it's little, you really got to grab on tight and then you, you might need to like really squat down and you got to pull as hard as you can and get it out. And this is what would happen when I would do it. I would pull it out and then the dirt would get all over me. You know, you had get up there, you kind of shake it out and I, w- I would get dirt all on my shirt. I get dirt down my shirt. I have to go take a shower when I was done. Pulling the root is when you get the dirtiest, right? Man, I got dirtier in the first service. Okay. <clears throat> you got to get dirty. Now, you ask the question... Once you get to the root of your problems, how do, you, how do you do this? How do you uproot that idol in your life? And I'm just going to simply say the way, the way you do that is you got to look back at what idols do, right? Remember we talked about that? You have to look at what idols do, and then you have to reverse it. 
So the Apostle Paul gives us a blueprint in Galatians 2, 20. He says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what do idols do in our hearts? First, they demand our love. And how do you reverse that? Well, you cling to a greater love. Right? So Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, what? He loved us. He gave himself for us. Jesus' love is the love to end all loves. And when we fix our hearts on that love, it melts away our love for those false idols. It helps to bring healing and hope in our lives. Second, idols demand our trust. Right? But Paul calls us in this verse to what? To place our faith in the Son of God. Idols are broken cisterns that will always disappoint us. But Jesus Christ did exactly what he said he would do. He left his place in heaven. He came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross when he did not have to, all because he wanted to rescue us. He wanted to save us. When did an idol ever do that for you? Never, because they're always out for themselves. Third, idols demand our obedience. What does Paul say? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, my allegiance has been transferred to my Savior King who is worthy of my heart. Everything, I lay down my fleshly desires. I put them under the control of King Jesus. His selfless sacrifice paid for my heart. And pulling up those weeds, it means that I transfer my love, my trust, and my obedience to the true King. In other words, you need a change of affection. Now, affection is a, is a tender feeling towards another. A change of affection means that our fondness has moved from idols to Jesus. But then you ask, well, how do I change my affections? Well, again, if I go back to that gardening image with my dad, once the root was pulled out, what happened then? Then it was time to plant another seed. Right? We, we, would, we would cover over the hole. We would replace it with something better and healthier. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. Now, if you look in your workbook on page 57 and 58, you'll see uh, there's two more steps we need to do in the change process. The first one is that you need to fertilize the soil of your heart. Fertilizer is something you add to the soil to stimulate growth. And so the spiritual life, uh, this includes elements like reading the word, engaging in prayer, uh, trusting God in adverse circumstances. God uses all those things to grow us. But then once you do that, you have to, secondly, you have to give it time, right? Growth does not happen overnight. Uh, Doing the work to pull up the weeds, that takes time. Fertilizing and growing something new also takes time. Eugene Peterson famously said, the Christian life, growing in the Christian life, is a long obedience in the same direction. Give it time, give it time, give it time. It's not an overnight process, but it is a process God promises to complete, And so he writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So let me close by coming back to Eustace Scrub in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. For much of the middle part of the book, Eustace is this ugly dragon. And he's depressed and he's sad by it. He, he looks back at his attitudes that he had and the way he acted, and he wants to change, but he's not sure how. And then he meets Aslan the great lion. And Aslan takes him to this pool of water and tells him to get in. It's a bit different than the, than the movie. You've got to read the book. 
And Eustace does. And Aslan tells what Aslan says. Aslan says you've got to undress yourself by scratching off your scales. And Eustace does that. He scratches and he scratches and he scratches. He scratches and he, he gets off one layer. And then he goes deeper. He takes off another layer. And then he goes deeper. He takes off another layer. And he says, I can't take it all off. I'm trying. And Aslan steps in. And this is what Eustace says. He says, then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, he says, you will have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws, he said, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure, right? The pain and the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel away. And friends, that is how, that's what it's like when Jesus changes our hearts. Because to confront the dragon within us, you need to let Jesus claw at those scales, rip them away, transform you into something new. It's painful, but it's worth it. And that's how change happens. How do you change? You find the root, you explore the root, then you pull the root. And after you do that, the only thing left is is to let the great lion take those final dragon scales off as you experience his transformation. Paul shared this to the church in Corinth. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That sums it up, and that's good news. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. And the worship team will come back on stage for one final song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace in our lives. Uh, Lord, we, we confess that this rule, this is, this is a painful one, Lord. This is a hard one for so many of us. It's, it's a path sometimes we'd rather not go down because we're comfortable where we are. But Lord, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would come in, that you would give us the strength to dig around, to find that root, to explore it. And then, Lord, by your power, would you help us pull it out that we may be changed people uh, that give you glory May we trust in you, the great lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to to, 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 to pull away the dross from our hearts, Lord, that we may desire you and love you above all else because you are greater than any false god we could possibly possibly be worshiping, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, your grace, your sacrifice. We place our faith in you today in Jesus' name. Amen.